Well, it is mid-January, and it's time for the NFL playoffs. How many of you on a weekend like this will watch at least a few minutes of professional football? Raise your hands. True confessions, good for all of you. It's once again time to find the Chicago Bears nowhere in sight. It's time once again to find Tom Brady front and center everywhere. The greatest player that everyone loves to hate because all he does is win. He's widely regarded, Tom Brady that is, as the greatest quarterback of all time. For many years played for the New England Patriots and for the last couple of years for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And he leads in almost every statistical category, perhaps none more important than MVPs, most valuable player trophies, and Super Bowl wins. And I'm going to wager that if he was on your team, that you would love him too. Because he could do for your team what almost no one else has done, and that is win, win, and win some more. So whatever happens this year, it's really hard to deny that the man Tom Brady is a winner. You can change the city, you can change the coach, you can change the players, you can change the conditions. The fact of the matter is Tom Brady wins. And all of us, deep down, want to be associated with, want to belong to a winner. In Luke's gospel, in the far more important story that God writes, Jesus Christ is the winner. Jesus is victorious. And today, from Luke chapter 3 and 4, we're going to launch into the account of Jesus Christ in prime time. I want you to turn in your Bibles there. Luke chapter 3 will be at the end of Luke 3, the beginning of Luke 4 today. I hope you bring a Bible, but if you didn't, never fear. We have got that covered for you. Just raise your hand. One of our hosts there in the aisles will give you a Bible on loan if you own one for keeps. If you don't, the scriptures are the word of God, and we want to hear from God this morning. Luke chapter 3, third of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third chapter, Luke 3. And there we see the, the, the spotlight of Luke the writer on Jesus Christ and his public ministry over the course of three years, roughly ages 30 to 33. And we see all kinds of details from this point forward about the life of Jesus, people, encounters, obstacles, and so forth. And at the end, of course, his death and resurrection that means everything to those of us who follow him. John the Baptist was the opening act. He was the forerunner. We've seen him in fits and starts in these first couple of chapters. Now it's about Jesus Christ front and center. He's the main event. He's the lead actor. He's the central character in the story. And all eyes are riveted and, and all stories are fixed on this person, Jesus. And today we're going to see that in three really important sections of Luke's gospel at the end of chapter three, beginning of chapter four, part of our up close and personal winter series. And the first point in your outline that you can follow along in a hard copy, I hope you pick one up, or online, gracepolaris.org slash program, is this. Jesus is the one approved completely by God the Father. Jesus is the one approved completely by God the Father. Verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Luke builds a bridge here to the previous section. Actually, the insertion of 
chapter divisions and headings and verses even were later put in to help us read easier, follow along, but they weren't part of the original scriptures. So this picks up right where we left off last week. And that was the ministry of John the Baptist, in particular his call in chapter 3, verse 3, urging the people to pursue a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in verses 16 and 17 of Luke 3, John compares his ministry and identity and his baptism even with that of Jesus the Christ. Look there, verse 16. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John says, you're looking for the Messiah, and I ain't he. Jesus is coming. And Jesus appears on the scene there, enters into the story, and is baptized by John. And all of us who read this ask the same question, why? Why is Jesus baptized? If this was a baptism of repentance for sin, and if Jesus had no need for repentance, why is Jesus getting baptized here? Good question. In fact, we learn from Matthew's account of this same story, something about this. In fact, John the Baptist had the same question. He says to Jesus in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, verse 14, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? John doesn't get it. But Jesus responds to him in saying, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says, this is a necessity that I be baptized by you. Why? Well, we can highlight a few reasons why that's true. First of all, Jesus' baptism by John is an endorsement of the ministry of John. Jesus is showing the people there that he approves of, he endorses John's message and testimony. They should listen and heed what John is saying. Jesus is also, secondly, identifying with the people. Jesus is fully human. And in doing this, he's identifying with the rest who have come to John. We'll see that theme in a bit. Third, in the Spirit's descending, Jesus reveals himself as the coming one to whom John pointed. John's been saying this all along, Jesus is saying, pointing to one to come, and I am he. And you see that in front of you. In fact, in John's gospel, same story, John describes the point of his baptism as being so Jesus might be revealed to Israel. The one you've been waiting for, Savior and Messiah, there he is. We might think of this baptism of Jesus at the hands of John to be a kind of inauguration, an installation ceremony of Jesus. This is where in the plan of God, God provides this coming out of Jesus, this revelation of who he is. This is God's chosen one. Heaven has spoken. God has revealed Jesus as his choice. Think of a political convention or a political candidate. God shows here his will, his vote, in endorsing this person, Jesus the Christ, as the one he has sent. The testimony of heaven is that this is God's beloved son. We shouldn't move on too quickly here without noticing the simultaneous appearance or unveiling of the Trinity here. 
the, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one essence, three persons, is at the core of the Christian faith. It is foundational. And here we see Jesus in the water, a voice from heaven of the Father, and the Spirit descending like a dove. Same time, same event. There are many heresies out there. One of them is the heresy of modalism, and that is that God reveals himself sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Spirit, but never at the same time. It's not true. The Bible teaches one essence, three persons, and we see all three of them in the middle of the action right here. The Trinity has always existed, but in some ways this is the beginning of the Trinitarian story laid out in the gospel. Now, for some people, the Trinity is a source of frustration, a a conundrum, something that they easily want to dismiss or roll their eyes at or say, "I, I don't get it. But the Trinity is not meant to confound us as much as it is meant to delight us. One God existing as three persons, all of whom love us and all of whom participate in our salvation. It's always going to be a sense of mystery. We can't avoid that. But it's no less true, even if we can't understand it fully. There's no God like this. One nature, one essence, three persons. We can can both embrace this and be mesmerized, even overwhelmed by it, all at the same time. We see that here in Jesus' baptism. Now Luke proceeds to show us what Jesus' lineage is like in regard to humanity. Point two in your outline, Jesus is the one representing perfectly all humanity. Jesus is the one representing perfectly all All humanity. Now, candor. When people encounter genealogies in the Bible, we tend to regard them either like a foreign language or like footnotes. And in either case, we skip them. I've done that myself. On rare occasions, we think there must be something here. So we comb through through them trying to find some secret jewel or hidden message within the verses. But both of those approaches are problematic. The best way to look at a genealogy is to say, why is the author including this here? What's his point? And if we ask that question, we'll find something crucial. That's true here. Verse 23 is fascinating. We learn something about the age of Jesus, public ministry from about age 30 to 33. We learn something about Jesus' father that legally speaking, and in terms of his reputation, people saw Joseph as Jesus' father. We know that's true, but he wasn't Jesus' biological father. And from there, it's just names, names, names from here on out. But there are a couple of names that ought to jump off the page. They certainly did to the original Jewish readers, and to Gentiles familiar with the Old Testament. In fact, we sang about some of them in one of our songs this morning. First name that should jump out is David, Israel's greatest king in the Old Testament. Second name that should jump out, Abraham, the patriarch to whom the promises were given. You and your offspring, blessed to be a blessing. And the third is at the very end, the name Adam, the first human being, first man, according to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, unlike a lot of genealogies, including Matthew's, Luke does this differently. He works backwards with his names so that he lands with Adam. Why? 
Well, because he wants the reader to know that Jesus is not just the culmination of Jewish history and descent. Jesus is actually the culmination of human history and descent. Jesus is the representative of the human race, and friends, that includes you and me. Jesus is the prototypical human being. We are related to Jesus. He's connected to us and he's capable for us. He identifies with us here and as we'll see, he overcomes on our behalf. The major theme here is that Jesus possesses the proper roots to be the promised agent of God. Listen closely. He's in David's line, pointing to a regal figure. He's in Abraham's seed, pointing to the Abrahamic promise. He's in Adam's seed, relating him to all humanity, and he is the son of God. Look at that phrase at the very end of chapter three. In him, all the hopes of the Old Testament are bound up, are rooted. And that matters for what Luke is about to recount here. Because after this genealogy, as we move into chapter 4, we move into this lengthier section that we often call the temptation of Christ. And central to that temptation is the conclusion reached by the gospel writers and hopefully by us that unlike Adam, who's another son of God, one who sinned, Jesus overcomes the tests. Where Adam and everybody else fails where you and I are destined to fail, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is victorious. Where the story of human history is a dismal failure of face plant after face plant on our parts, Jesus stands the test. And that gives unbelievable hope to people in a world that otherwise has and should have no hope. Point three, where we'll spend the rest of our time. Jesus is the one tempted unsuccessfully by the devil. Let me read those first 13 verses there. Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift, up, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus had been inaugurated. We see that in his baptism. Heaven shouts its approval. Jesus had been validated. We see that in the genealogy, in the lineage there. Jesus is legitimate. But the question is, with all this buildup, with all this hype, will Jesus deliver? Talk is cheap 
actions speak. Makes me think of the opening introductions at a highly anticipated athletic event. Say the opening game of the college basketball season. Imagine for months or for years, fans have been hearing incessantly about this young phenom who can do it all on the court, who's a superstar in the making. The top, the talk never stops. And so at the beginning of the game, the public address announcer gets on there and introduces this player, his hometown and, and his status and his statistics in the past and his reputation. And the spotlight is on him and the music is blaring and the crowd is beside themselves in adoration. The expectations at the beginning of this game, this unveiling of this superstar, are through the roof. But the question in the back of everyone's mind is, given all that hype, when the tip-off happens, when the game starts, when the main event comes, will he deliver? And that's the question for us here. Follow along in the narrative. First subpoint there, depending on the spirit. We, we find the main event here. Jesus and his adversary alone in conflict. And the tension is heightened. What, what's going to happen? Luke set, sets the stage in his first couple of verses, describing both the tailwinds and the headwinds that Jesus possesses. The things in his favor and the things that are stacked against Jesus as he faces the devil. We see those in verses 1 and 2, respectively. First of all, the tailwinds, the advantages. Luke mentions two times the Holy Spirit. Jesus is full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Don't bypass those. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is not accidentally led into the wilderness. This has divine planning, divine approval. Jesus is there on purpose. God knew that this temptation would come for Jesus and led Jesus through the Spirit there anyway. It wasn't that Jesus had accidentally taken the wrong turn and somehow accidentally ended up in the wrong alley. Oops. No. The Spirit was with Jesus. And Jesus was, was tested here so that he would pass the test. But the devil tempted Jesus, hoping for failure. Verse 1. Verse 2 describes the headwinds, the obstacles that Jesus faces. First, Jesus faces an enemy. This is the first time in Luke's gospel where the devil is explicitly named. Now, the devil is all through the gospel, all through the life of Jesus. We see him and his minions popping up in all kinds of places, encounters people, and then in a huge way, again, at the cross. So it's not like this is the first time the devil's been around or will be around. But he makes an appearance here front and center. Jesus faces this temptation over a long duration. We read the words 40 here, and it should remind us of a bunch of things from the Old Testament. The duration of the flood, the fast of Moses and Elijah, Moses receiving the covenant on the mountain, the period of Israel's wilderness wanderings. 40 is a big deal, a, an important number. And Jesus here is physically compromised over 40 days. The words are explicit. He did not eat 
and he was hungry after 40 days. My wife can attest, takes me hours. This is 40 days. And Luke highlights all of these realities. There's an enemy, there's a duration of time, and Jesus has inescapable hunger. But the headline is bigger than just the temptation of Jesus. The headline is that this Jesus, the Son of God, whose lineage goes back to Adam, compares and contrasts with the first Adam. His situation contrasts with Adam because Adam had not fasted at all. Jesus had fasted for 40 days. Adam could eat from any tree in the garden save one. Jesus was denied food. Adam was in paradise. Jesus was in the wilderness, the desert. The first Adam was tempted in a beautiful garden and failed. The last Adam was tempted in a dangerous wilderness and succeeded. Never believe the lie that if the conditions were different, then you would automatically succeed. Adam and Jesus show us that conditions don't determine destiny. Your circumstances don't define the outcome. Jesus is the Son of God, and he's obedient to God in ways that everyone else, Adam and you and I, fail. Jesus is victorious. Now, let's enter the story and see how the narrative plays out here. Many people have pointed out that the temptations that Jesus experiences are similar to the temptations that, that we encounter in this sense. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 describe three ways in which Satan tempts us. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. Satan hasn't really changed his tune. He's still singing the same songs as he tempts us with these things. And Satan is a usurper. His authority is temporary, and it's not complete. But he tries to make it so. Let's see what happens here. Point two, the first of the temptations, resisting desperation. First, the devil, in his own way, appeals to Jesus' desperate physical need by telling him to use his divine power. Remember the genealogy there? Adam was a son of God. Jesus, a descendant of Adam. But Jesus is a unique one, as we'll see here. And the devil uses this phrase, son of God, applied to Jesus. He's saying, if this is who you are, then show it. Verify this is true. Act accordingly. Satan wants Jesus to use his divine power for his own purposes. This is the lust of the flesh. It's the desire to satisfy our physical desires or, or needs or wants even to trump our spiritual calling. And Jesus calls out the devil on this temptation and refutes it by quoting scripture. Now, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. He is the God Man, He's not 50-50, he's 100% God and 100% human. But as we'll see here, Jesus doesn't always use all the, of the prerogatives 
the advantages of his divine nature. He's totally committed to the Father, and he will only do what the Father directs through the Spirit. Wearsby writes, as the eternal Son of God, he had power to do anything. But as the humble Son of Man, he had authority to do only that which the Father willed. Jesus didn't act independently for his own advantage, as we read in Philippians chapter 2. He acts in perfect coordination with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is not about to short-circuit God's plan. Next temptation, second, point three here, resisting presumption, verse five and following. This is the temptation, the lust of the eyes. The devil appealed to Jesus's human desire to possess or our human desire to possess what we see. It says here that he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Somehow, and we're not quite sure in what form, he, he made clear to Jesus what all of the earthly kingdoms were, what they looked like. Now, I've been in Israel once, going again uh, this spring. There's still a little time if you want to join the group, a few spots available. I know from the land of Israel that there are some high places, but none in which you can see all the kingdoms of the world. However, it happened, Jesus did. And Satan said to Jesus, the devil said to Jesus, that if he would only give him his heart, just bow down and give me allegiance, you can have it all. But the devil knew that as soon as Jesus did that, as soon as his knees touched the ground, so to speak, that he would be breaking the relationship of perfect harmony with the Father. He would be seizing that which could personally satisfy, but wasn't part of God's promise. In some ways, this temptation and its meaning are unique to Jesus, but there are analogies, principles that connect with us. One of them is this. What we worship will own our hearts. What we worship will own our hearts. So we have to be vigilant about what we desire and the things that we serve in this life. And that's particularly true in unique features of our own lives. Warren Wearsby says, whatever we worship, we will serve. Service to the Lord is true freedom, but service to Satan is terrible bondage. And this sentence sticks out. God's pattern is to start with suffering and end with glory, while Satan's pattern is to start with glory and end with suffering. Isn't that true? Satan comes along to each one of us in various moments and says, you can have it all here. You can have what you desire only for us to find out that it is empty and dangerous to our souls in due time. Christ comes along, the message of Christianity is that there may be suffering in the here and now, but in trusting Jesus, it will end in glory. The message of Christianity is a large dose of delayed gratification. The message of our enemy is you can have it now. Seize it. Think back to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with Daniel in that book. Maybe you know the story. They were commanded to, to worship, to serve something, someone to save their lives by an act 
of changed allegiance, but they saw through that lie. They, they recognized that this temptation looked great and was going to be empty. And they decided they were willing to live and die for God rather than to give into something that wasn't going to satisfy and was going to betray their allegiance. Jesus knew that too. Jesus responded perfectly here. None other was great enough to compromise his allegiance to the Father. Third temptation, resisting ambition, beginning in verse 9. These temptations, the second and third, are in a different order than we find them in Matthew. And we weren't there, so we don't know in exactly what order they occurred. And and there's a, a sense of liberty that the gospel writers have as they describe these three. And Luke, for purposes of his own, ends with this one for particular reasons. He appeals to the pride of life for Jesus, namely that Jesus could coerce God into acting according to his will. That the Father would be at the mercy of the Son. Now, Jewish historians of that day tell us that this was fairly typical of of miracle workers, of wonder workers of the time. That, That they would... They would ask God or provoke God to do something. And if God came through for them, then it would validate who they were, their own identity. I stood on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it's a long fall, especially on certain sides to the bottom. The devil took Jesus up to the top of the temple, not just the mount, but the temple. It's a long, fatal fall from the top of that. That's what the devil's promising. He's saying, if you do that, God will save you and you will move his hand. This is a particularly sly temptation from the devil. He quotes, he misquotes scripture in this case. He says, show the unlimited favor that God has for you by allowing God to spectacularly protect you, preserve you. Sounds respectable, but Jesus says, no, it's foolish. We can do that in our own lives. We can tempt God to come through for us so that we look good. We can go out on a limb and we can tell God that we think this is right and this is good and I'm going to do this and God, if you're for me, you'll come through and save the day. We expect God to deliver us. We think he's going to reward us for our faith. In reality, we're asking him to rescue us from our stupidity. And there's a difference. Jesus' rebuke here is very clear. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This isn't right, devil. And I won't do it. His response to these temptations is very instructive. Three times he quotes, not just from the Old Testament, but from a section there in Deuteronomy 6 to 8. It's the story of God's warnings to the Jewish people, to the Israelites, where he urges them to be faithful to him amidst the temptations and trials. And as one of the songs in our Bible, Psalm 106 points out, they failed each and every time. But unlike Israel of old, Jesus shows here the Son of God, he faithfully resists the devil's temptations. 
where Israel fell flat on her face, Jesus stands tall and succeeds. Where they and we fail, Jesus is victorious. Some have pointed out here that of all the things that the devil offers Jesus, he actually receives all of them in due time. He would miraculously provide bread for the masses later. He would later obtain all authority and and splendor in heaven and on earth in the cross and resurrection. He would one day receive the service and the worship of all the angels ruling at the Father's right hand. What Satan offered Jesus wasn't inherently wrong. But for Jesus to seize it then and there in his timing was. And that's true about a lot of our temptations. A lot of our desires and longings in life are not inherently wrong. What is wrong is the demand that God give them to us in the here and now when we want them, when we think best, not according to his plan. And when we seize that, we often sow the seed of our own destruction and devastation. Jesus is an example here. He knows the scripture. He believes the scripture. He quotes the scripture. Jesus is not flat-footed in the face of temptation. Jesus knew what God had said and in the moment was able to recall and to speak that back to temptation. Three times he does that. Jesus knows that much of the spiritual armor that we have is rooted in our knowing the word of God. In fact, Paul says that later. Paul, the follower of Jesus, in one of his letters, Ephesians chapter 6, describes spiritual armor. And he says in verse 16, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which allows us to recall what the lies of the devil are and to speak truth back to him. That's important. There is never a time, whether it's 2022 or another year, never a place where knowing, memorizing scripture is out of vogue. You may think you can take your phone with you anywhere, but it's your heart that will respond in the moment. Knowing the scriptures matters. Al Mohler, seminary president of our day, said the most dangerous thing a Christian can ever do is to believe that he is somehow immune to temptation. If we think that we are somehow freed up from fighting temptation, then we have both overestimated our own spiritual state and grossly underestimated our need for God's grace. Christ wasn't immune. He was prepared. And he trusted in the power and the provision of the Spirit. And so can we. Remember, he was filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And the same can be true for every follower of Jesus in whom the Spirit dwells. You want power over temptation? You need the Spirit of God in your life. And only those who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus receive him. Verse 13 says, When the devil had finished all this tempting... He left him, Jesus, until an opportune time. It wasn't that he was done with Jesus. He would raise his ugly head again and again, and especially at the cross. 
And when that came again, when the devil thought that he this time would win against Jesus, he spectacularly lost. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says that Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan at the cross, triumphing over him. The devil wouldn't win. Jesus wouldn't let him. Jesus is victorious. Colin Smith, a pastor in our day, says this, the only one to know the full force of the enemy's assault is the one who did not break. That's Jesus. So Christian, don't ever think that Christ's temptations were less than yours. Only Christ knows the full power of temptation because only Christ has withstood the full force of the enemy's assault. So you can be tempted and give in right away and it didn't take much effort. You can be tempted and struggle for some time and then give in and it takes some effort. But Jesus Christ, not just the duration of this temptation, but all the temptations of his life continually withstood the temptations because he lived in the power of the Spirit and because he knew the Scriptures and was able to see through the lies of the devil. Don't ever say, well, it was Jesus. It was easy. No, not at all. The central point of this section is that Jesus is the obedient Son of God. Jesus is successful in the face of temptation when everyone else, Jew, Gentile, then, now, you, me, is not. Where we fail on our own. And yet the primary message of this passage isn't primarily, here are a few steps to resisting temptation. There are those here. There are principles here. But the primary message of this passage isn't just know the word. It's trust the son. It's run to the one who is not a failure like you and I are left to ourselves, but who is the victor and has won the victory. And you can too if you know him. Trust the Son, because in the Son, you receive the power to obey the Scriptures and to follow the Spirit. The Lord Jesus endured temptation in our place. So in our temptations, here and now, run to Christ. The Son stands in our place to defeat the temptation that often defeats us. He doesn't do this to say, okay, now, that's how you do it. Our Lord didn't endure this so that we would have a model to follow. He did this so that we would have mercy when falling. Christ, deliver us. Christ, deliver me. Jesus passed the test. Adam failed, Eve failed, Israel failed, you fail, I fail. But Jesus did not. And therefore, he's our shield. He's our savior. He's our high priest for us. What are you tempted by these days? Is it the feeling that God's forgotten you? That he's going to leave you high and dry in your relationships? Is it the fear that the physical ailments you have, the prognosis that you've received, is too much and God's powerless to change it? Is it the conclusion that your work will never be a joy? That you'll never have purpose beyond the paycheck? Is it relationally that 
maybe you'll never get married or you'll never have children or you'll never enjoy sex, you'll never have a healthy family, that these things just won't work, that God will abandon you? Is it that you'll never be able to live with a level of financial provision or security, that God's just toying with you? Is it that you cannot ask for forgiveness or you fear you won't receive it? Or you refuse to offer it to someone else? See, I, I look at all of you, I, I don't know what you're facing. But I know the one who is victorious in the face of temptation over the devil. And because he was victorious and is the victor, he wants victory in your life. Do you believe that? That Jesus has the power. Jesus is the provision for us. That Jesus has overcome. And he wants that to be your story too. And the only way is to know him and to trust him. I want to close with a couple of verses from the writer of Hebrews that speaks of the humanity of Jesus and why he's such wonderful news to those who follow. Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, For this reason... He, Jesus, had to be made like them, us humans, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. That's you and me. Chapter 4, a page later of Hebrews verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you have a time of need? Are you in a time of need? Is this life a time of need? Run to Jesus, for he's the victor. Jesus is the gold standard of true humanity. And when you know him, you can live as a true human, as God designed. But you must have Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gracious provision of your son. Fully God and fully man who came and lived among us to show us what it was like to live a fully human life. The kind that we were meant to live and the kind that in the power of your spirit we can learn to live. Thank you that in our need you offer us provision. In our loss and sin, you offer us a Savior. And I pray that we would run to him and learn the joy of living with him in the face of a broken, falling, temptation-filled world. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.